Today's Between the Covers was recorded live at Powell's Bookstore in downtown Portland, Oregon. A conversation with Colleen Berner about their debut novella, Sister Golden Calf. The person introducing us both, Kevin Samsel, is himself a Pass Between the Covers guest. He runs Future Tense Books and is a longtime staff member at Powell's. I've known Colleen since we met in our MFA program long ago, and we seem to not only have an affinity for each other as people since we became friends and have stayed friends ever since, but also a shared aesthetic affinity, an attraction to hybrid writing or writing of indeterminate genre, as well as an attraction to prose where the sentence is attended to with the same attention to its musicality as poetry, something that I think you could say about Sister Golden Calf. One thing I'll mention before we begin this conversation is that because Sister Golden Calf is a road narrative of two sisters, we discuss Vanessa Veselka's writings on the absence of female road narratives, the implications of this absence not only for literature, but also for women in the world. Because of this, the most natural listen to pair with this conversation is the most recent of the two conversations with Vanessa herself, the conversation about her book, The Great Offshore Grounds. As usual for supporters, I include links to that conversation and to the pertinent essays of Vanessa Veselka's and point people to Colleen's literary journal, Shirley Magazine, among other things the resource email with each episode, and the collective brainstorm of who to have on the show in the future is something every supporter receives and is invited to participate in. And then there are a ton of other things to potentially choose from, whether the bonus audio archive or rare collectibles from past guests or the Tin House Early Readership Program receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before the general public. You can find out about all of this and much, much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Colleen Berner. Thank you for coming out tonight. Please take this moment to silence your cell phones or devices. And a reminder, you can always keep up with who's coming to Powell's by looking online at powells.com. Our event calendars can be found around the store as well at the information desk. And you can also follow us on all the major social medias. Tonight, we're very excited to welcome Colleen Berner in conversation with David Naiman. Colleen Berner is a graduate of the MFA writing program at Portland State University, an Oregon Literary Arts Fellowship recipient, and co-editor for the wonderful online journal Shirley Magazine. 
In their debut novella, Sister Golden Calf, we take a road trip shadowed in grief with sisters Gloria and Kit. There is a trunk full of jars to sell and trade, but their livelihood is not peanut butter or baby food or mayonnaise. It's more like emotions, dreams, and illusions. Like gravity or helium, it's invisible, but truly there. As their 93 Honda Accord travels across New Mexico, the grief-stricken sisters find unexpected obsessions. A taxidermied eight-legged calf in a roadside museum, a holy hole in the dirt floor of a church. They cross paths with a roving motorcycle gang and an eyeless horse and find themselves in a mysterious ghost town. Sister Golden Calf is a sprawling and emotionally driven novella where the road is never ending and sisterhood can be home. Werner will be joined in conversation by David Naiman, host of the literary podcast Between the Covers. He is recording uh, this conversation tonight for a future episode, and we thank him for being part of tonight's event. Tonight's event includes an audience Q&A, and then Colleen will be up here to sign books for you at this table. We ask that you line up over here when that time comes. You can uh, get the books signed and then pay for them downstairs after they are signed. Colleen is going to read a little bit first, and then David will come up and join them after that. So please welcome Colleen Berner. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, it's a real trip being on this side of the room. Thank you all so much for coming. I wanted to say also thank you to the people of PALS for making this event happen. They all deserve to be paid a fair wage, it should go without saying. Um, thank you also to the people at Split Lip Press for making this book a real object to hold. <laughs> and yeah, thank you again so much for being here. It means a lot. So I'm going to read a little bit from Towards the Middle, um, Sister Golden Calf is two sisters on the road, but there's a certain point where they split off in different directions. And so this is where Gloria, the narrator, is on her own on the road. When we, I grind my feet into the dirt, last left, push my right fist, thumb extended toward the road, our hero. No cars, no cars, no cars. My brain, my heart, is a spool that has let out a slack line along the road since becoming attached to the calf. My other half, half-calf, decaf, halved, calved, a calf eteria, an old punchline. Have-calf will travel. A spool of umbilical cord, maybe, not sure which one of us has the womb end. Do you have a plan? Kit had asked, searching with my eyes closed and arms out again. No cars, no cars, a semi passes, no cars. The afternoon air is warm, warmer, warmest all around me, with breezes cutting through like wonderful knife blades. Does it help to take steps backwards? Isn't that what they do in movies? While wearing sunglasses and cut off shorts? When's the last time I watched a movie? 
When Kit drove away, there was an audible ripping noise, like bed sheets. That's another movie thing, bed sheets for escape. What is the point of having a plan? I touch my pocket to make sure my thin bundle of ones and fives is still safe, as if it would have blown away somehow. Plans hardly ever work anyway. Here's a plan, Kit. Hurry up. Meet me with a melted milkshake. Greet my calf with some genuine mirth. Try to see her as I do. See her as I see me. I wonder where Kit is. I try not to wonder where I am. I am on a line, surrounded by landscape. Sometimes there are signs. I know there will be a car, and this is placement enough. Three cars pass, going the other direction. If I crossed and sit on the other side of the road, would I realize it? What is this a sign of? I think about riding with LA however many days before, how covering distance like that felt so different from riding in a car. Like I could see myself as a moving black dot on a map, route dictated by terrain rather than highway. And the loudness was terrifying at first, then immersive. The calf, the calf, my calf. My heart throbs, I can feel my pulse in my fist. I think of my love as some kind of holy grail, sacred but not untouchable. Do objects long for us when we aren't there? Does the Honda miss me, maybe? If it was once alive, or parts of it were, is it really an object? When is that transference? A wind, a wind, a beautiful green Buick Skylark pulls over. I remember where I'm trying to be going. I shut the door in. I'm Betty, says the driver, a woman with a high, tight gray perm, maybe early 50s. I'm Gloria. My mouth is dry. She jabs her thumb toward the back seat. That's mom, she says. Mom is a piebald Great Dane, white and rust like a cow, sleeping all over the back seat with her pink belly looking at me. Ma, where are you headed? Betty asks. Northeast, I guess, toward Fort Sumner. How about you? We're going north too, but west. That place with all the satellites, very large array. That's where mom and I like to go camping. In that right, mom? Mom yawns and licks her muzzle, rolls over. I think about what Kit would think of that place, about what could be reached, what would want to be reached, if it's like any of the non-living entities we seek, or if they would be seeking us, looking to contain us. And then, inventory. No jars, that's for damn sure. No Bonnie, either. So what are you doing out here on your own? I think, where do I begin? I realize I haven't been in a car without Kit for a long, long time. I take in the faded brown vinyl of the dashboard, the gear shift knob worn from years of palming, the sun-bleached alien figurine bobbing from the rear view with a disproportionately large head, shiny black eyes, and string bean fingers offering a peace sign. Trying to rendezvous with my sister, I say, after I pick something up in Fort Sumner. You get this in Roswell? I tap the alien's foot. Yep, lived there about nine years now, haven't seen anything like that yet. Some other things, though. UFOs, space specters, that sort of thing. But no hard alien evidence yet. She thumps her fist on the steering wheel. Kit and I went to Roswell once as adults. We'd been taken there as kids on the few milestone journeys to Carlsbad Caverns. All the once bright green aliens in shop windows at Kit Height were faded and dusty, and the dioramas of the UFO museum were garish and cobbled together. 
mannequins dressed as doctors and FBI agents, gathered around a makeshift alien on a gurney, all magic and tension stripped from a moment of high speculation and wonder. I think it must have struck us differently than other visitors who are sci-fi fans or believers, disappointed in the lack of pizzazz and proof. For us, it was a frozen moment of discovery and exploration, coming face to face with something that had only been supposed, never proven, and the tension of that moment, the energy that would allow the future to go one way or the other was sucked out by static figures in fluorescent lights. Perhaps this was expecting too much from a small town tourist attraction. Of course, their radar picked it up on July 4th, so we can't put too many eggs in that basket. But I think all those satellites are picking up on things and not even telling the computers or operators the satellites are keeping secrets. I catch up. What, like an artificial intelligence conspiracy? Sure, or they're being manipulated by whoever it is they're intercepting. They're just big eavesdroppers, you know, just big ears. So mom and I go out a few times a year to see if we can pick up on anything, too. Have you heard anything yet? Heck, you think even a dog's ear would be able to reach way, way, way up into space and catch those waves? Well, I, I'm sorry, sweetie. I meant eavesdropping ears like scents for us. She pauses, drums her thumbs on the steering wheel, swerves around the bloating body of an unidentified furry thing. You know how sunflowers, let's say, follow the sun with their faces all day? She steers with her knees a beat so she can frame her face with her hands and move it left to right. I think it's like that. The satellites move based on the force of something else, literally a higher power, but without all the theology, let's say. I thought they moved based on a computer program controlled by humans. What do you think tells the humans what to do? She clicks her tongue and points her finger gun at me, the gesture of a cracked code. I'm not too sure what she's talking about or if I'm asking the right questions, but I don't mind being on this side of the conversation with someone who believes in something like this, space-based and invisible in its own way. Mom shifts herself onto her belly and settles her head on the armrest between Betty and me. Her eyes beg and she ekes out a whine so thin I'm surprised Betty hears it. Time to pull over, she says, and the skylark crunches over the shoulder. We stretch our legs while Mom ambles around looking for the right patch of pale grass to pee on. I close my eyes and let the sun come through, fleshy red like cherry pulp, flashing lighter and darker as my eyeballs twitch back and forth. It feels safe inside like this, and I start feeling uneasy about what might happen when I open my eyes again. I start to worry she's going to ask me questions I'm not up to answering, or that her enthusiasm for life in outer space will turn into some sort of proselytizing. I don't want to talk about beliefs. The soul is fine, but I don't want so much for man-made words like good and evil to get involved. It's a worry like I'm harboring a secret. Some folks thought Bonnie was a witch, but that's also a man-made thing, isn't it? What about a feeling or a memory? Things that happen, that exist, but you can't touch them or see them. Not in front of your eyes, anyway. We were concerned with the invisible things not formed by hands. Things tucked in small vials Bonnie kept in the pocket of her apron, along with the pink packets of false sugar. I opened my eyes to see Mom, bounding in near slow motion to Betty's open arms. I feel a pang of longing, look down the highway wide and empty, clear to the horizon. 
feel the choice between two unknowns and decide to get back in Betty's car. Thank you. David, hi. Hi, Colleen. <laughs> so I wanted to start out with reading this book that's a road novel of two sisters. One of the first things I thought of was Vanessa Veselka, not the experience of reading her. Uh, your book doesn't read like a Vanessa Veselka book, but there's certain philosophical underpinnings that she explores in some of her essays about the female road narrative that I felt really connected to your book, so much so that I, I quoted from one of them in the blurb mm -hmm. for the book. But I had no idea that it was actually an influence. And later you sent me a list of your influences, and the number one one was Vanessa Veselka. So I felt yeah. like maybe we could start from this place of philosophy mm -hmm. and the female road narrative, and maybe you could speak to some of the ways her thinking might have influenced some of your choices in the narrative. Sure. So the essay that we're talking about is called Green Screen, and it's about the lack of female road narratives. Veselka talks a lot about the known road narratives and how the really iconic ones on the road, The Hobbit, uh, Huck Finn, too, I think, uh, they're all male-driven. And she goes into the distinction about how when a man is on the road, he's solitary. But when you hear a story of a woman on a road, she's alone, she's making bad decisions, and she's obviously surrounded by threats and danger all the time. When I read that, I was definitely in my peak of my figuring out my own feminism, too, and that was very formative, and definitely a moment of like, hey, yeah, she's right. Um, that's really messed up. And <laughs> uh, I had also had this idea for a story about these two sisters traveling around New Mexico. So I was just thinking about, okay, how can I, what can I do to sort of fill that void, you know, not like fill it completely, but what can I do to chip in? And so one main thing that I did was I didn't include any men in the book to just take away a lot of what we know as threats and danger for women on the road, a, a huge source of that. Not that I could have written the book that has men in it, but still avoids all those threats for sure. But I kind of just wanted a break from even thinking about that. And so by taking them out of the equation and just getting it to, it's just these sisters, they're on the road because of grief, but they also don't have a huge purpose. So it's not necessarily a quest narrative or they get to be just as aimless as other men do, basically. And yeah. I just wanted to afford them that agency. Well, I wanted to just read one thing from Green Screen. So sort of set things up going forward, because one of the things she argues is that the loss of female road narratives isn't just a loss for literature, but it's actually a loss for women in, in the world. So in talking about murdered and disappeared women, this is what Veselka said. There is no doubt that the social invisibility of these women contributed to their predation, 
but what exactly was that invisibility made from? These women weren't remembered, it seemed, because they hadn't been seen in the first place. And they hadn't been seen partly because there was no cultural narrative for them beyond rape and death. As such, women on the road were already raped, already dead, whereas a man on the road might be seen as potentially dangerous, potentially adventurous, or potentially hapless. In all cases, the discourse is one of potential. When a man steps onto the road, his journey begins. When a woman steps onto that same road, hers ends. I guess I wondered, maybe this is an extension of what you've already said, but you remove men, and there's no sexual violence in the book. It doesn't mean that there's not threats. There's still Mm -hmm. things that happen that aren't good. Mm -hmm. But is there a way removing that changes something about how you're telling the story also beyond that? Does it change the way the story moves or the form of the way you tell the story? Probably in ways that I'm not aware of, for sure. But I think also it took away the idea of like the male gaze or trying to be good in that way. Not that they're doing things to defy it, but when you just don't have to think about those things, then what sort of freedom do you have? Mm. And what, what do you fill that space in your brain with? Maybe it ends up being filled with fears of isolation or being on the road at night by yourself or other women who might harm you. But it also let me go into a space of, well, if the characters aren't concerned with us, then I don't have to be either as a person. So it was sort of an interesting, like, um, almost normalization of that. It was a practice of that, too. I think it probably did make me write some things a little bit more freely, also. Mm. Wow. Well, you mentioned that there's no destination. Mm-hmm. The sister's mother has died, and the the traveling without destination is a sort of way for them to process their grief as they drive away from what they know. And I have some questions I want to ask you about the jars, which are the way they continue. So they capture ephemeral things and name them and sell them as a way to keep going on this destinationless journey of, of grief. <laughs> so um, before I ask the questions... Maybe you could just explain a little bit. Well, I'd be interested to know how you came up with this, but also just how it works for them. Like mm-hmm. how, how do they, what are they capturing? Or what are some examples of what they're capturing? And then what, what are they doing with them? Sure. I needed some sort of mechanism that would let them sustain themselves. So they have to like comply with capitalism in, in one way or another, unfortunately. So I was thinking, like, what can I do that is not um, too simple and also not too complicated? And what could sort of open up things to a little bit more magical possibility, a little more surrealism? Invisibility is a great gateway into that. Um, Figuring out how they actually do this was something that I was still figuring out in final edits for this, really, because... I don't know if it's a function of you made it up, so you have to figure out the rules now, or if I just couldn't really decide on 
what it would look like. So it took a while. And there are like different scenes of this where you sit with an open jar, you get very still, you allow yourself to be sort of open to the atmosphere and the ether that's around you. Or maybe there's scenes where they've seen an animal that's just been hit by a car. So they think, okay, we'll go over and see what what comes out of that creature. Because you can capture something like an animal soul or something that's just floating around, um, invisible sort of a feeling or a force around you. The sisters experience it in slightly different ways, but it kind of for both of them, there's sort of just a stillness and kind of an energy feeling. And then there's a sensation of something having gone into the jar. And then that's when they know that, that they've had success. To land there seemed both concrete enough and abstract enough to to propel them somehow and to keep them going and to be maybe plausible enough that people would trade them money for these things yeah. too. Because <laughs> that's the catch. <laughs> well, I think the reason why it works so well is because it becomes sort of this currency or barter around the process of grieving because I feel like the easy answer is these jars and this process is uncanny. But in a weird way, it feels like they're rep- it's representing what we can't capture in language. And I think about very real things that are hard to describe with words, whether that be grief um, or love or friendship, that we end up defaulting to very generic, mm-hmm. shared public language. But in a weird way, it feels like what's happening in the jars is very real, even though you've made this supernatural system. But I know you've had a long-standing interest in the uncanny. So your your magazine, which is now called Shirley, S-U-R-E-L-Y, yes. used to be called Shirley, S-H-R-L-E-Y, <laughs> after Shirley Jackson. Yeah, we're clever. Um And this is what you say at Shirley Magazine when you're soliciting people to submit to you. Give us a slice of the sublimely strange. We want the eerie and the beautiful. We're interested in the body and its grotesqueries, the brain and its tricks. We want stories that don't clearly belong to any one genre, stories that will get our hands dirty, Stories that expose the worms wriggling under the rock. You also called Shirley Jackson's book, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, the book Soulmate, Mm -hmm. and partly because of its affinity for strangeness. So I guess I wanted you to speak a little bit into the uncanny, maybe your interest in the uncanny, whether the uncanny is related to naming or not being able to name. Um, Because naming is very much a part of this jar system, too. Mm -hmm. So it it brings up questions of language. Um, Are the jars uncanny in your mind? Talk to us about uncanniness and and evoking uncanniness. (laughs) Well, what's the opposite of uncanny? Canny? Canned. Let's say canned, where it's sealed. It's sealed and very clearly labeled, and hopefully whatever's going on in the can, you know exactly what to expect. There's a label with a picture on the outside. 
maybe there's botulism. Who knows? But if you're going to pop that can and uncan it, anything could come out. I think that's really the thing is just uncanny maybe as a sort of synonym for possibility and not in terms of probability either, but just in terms of amplifying the ways in how life works, how anything could happen. And But when you when it's on a page and when it's intentionally amplified like that, it can be fun and it can be scary in a fun way or just enjoyable. And it's it's safe when it's on the page too, as opposed to the horror of somebody who's, I don't know, like a doppelganger coming up to you <laughs> and telling you things about yourself, <laughs> um, for example. So that has just been something so interesting. I think in part it, it has also been a rebellion to more traditional or more canned uh, expected themes or subject matter it can be hard to get away from that because when it's done well, it's done super well and you want to spend more time with it. But also when, when you sort of turn a corner and something unexpected is there, but a writer is in control, then you're just along for the ride. So our origin story is we met a long time ago in the MFA program at Mm -hmm. PSU Mm -hmm my first class in the summer before I started, I think 21st century nonfiction with Paul Paul Collins, and we sat next to each other. Mm -hmm. And my experience of the program, I don't know if this was yours, was that it was very, it very much encouraged hybrid and cross-genre writing. Uh, You'd take a poetry class on syntax and you might be reading prose and you take a fiction seminar and there'd be poetry and there were weird non-normative non-fiction pieces in that class a lot of them Mm -hmm. and I know even with I was listening to you on the poetry vlog with C.R. Grimmer Mm -hmm. and they said that you bonded in the program over (laughs) hybrid work yeah we never had a class together yeah but (laughs) But we did but you did bond over hybridity and that's also something that you solicit Mm -hmm. in your magazine so I wanted to read I'm going to read a quote that you have on your website by Annie Dillard you were made and set here to give voice to this your own astonishment The most demanding part of living a lifetime as an artist is the strict discipline of forcing yourself to work steadfastly along the nerve of one's own most intimate sensitivity. Anne Truitt, the sculptor, said this. Thoreau said it another way. Know your own bone. Pursue, keep up with, circle round and round your life. Know your own bone, gnaw at it, bury it, unearth it, and gnaw at it still. That quote makes me wonder if if there was a way this fictional story was also circling around and around your own life, and if so, in what way. But in a more general sense, with your attraction to crossing genres, is there a way in which you feel like this book crosses genres or has elements of other genres or troubling some 
known form within the fiction genre. To speak about sort of where it came from and how it maybe ties into my own life, um, my sister, who's here tonight, we did take a trip to New Mexico several years ago by ourselves and just kind of drove in a big circle around it. And it was wonderful. It was very much like, uh, oh, this is why they call it the land of enchantment. And I would not want to be here with anybody else. Before we left, even, I had sort of been trying to figure out, like, okay, I kind of want to write a short story about sisters, because that's kind of what I know. I grew up with a sister, and what is that relationship like? What am I subconsciously trying to figure out about that? <laughs> Which is, you know, a great use for writing, for sure. So that sort of started going, and I kind of just kept packing different things into it, because we just saw so many things, and... I felt so many different things about the landscape and what, how different it was and what it is like to just keep traveling for a while. I also went ahead and made um, a death in the family part of their motivation or at least emotional motivation. And then my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor and grief started. And there was a big exploration in anticipatory grief. What will this be like? What will it be like to lose a parent? Writing into that was also a way of gnawing on that bone, too. And a sort of way to acquaint myself with what I thought that feeling would be like. So that's that first part. And then in terms of genre, I think there is, there's elements of Westerns in it. There's elements of fantasy too, even just with not having men in the book. I think, you know, it's not stated outright, but that's definitely a fantastical thing to do. Um, and just having this idea of magic also, or I mean, not magic feels like kind of an umbrella term for what it is, but belief in something that's not necessarily um, a known religion or a known belief, widespread belief system. So what happens when you get into that? And what, what happens when there's that sort of merging of I'm feeling this very real, very intense feeling in my life and my heart and what can this belief in an invisible thing or just in the idea of a belief, of an invisible thing because doubt is also a huge element what happens when those all start to mix together because if if that part wasn't there it could have really easily have just been a very straightforward traditional very concrete very feet on the ground story just about grief and what happens but that's for somebody else to write. My next genre question might be, I think might be hard to answer, but your, your press asked you what your favorite sentence was in, yeah. in the book. And the sentence is, the afternoon light is diamond hard. The road is a long mercurial tongue lapping us up. And I know from knowing you that Syntax and language is important for you as a reader and also as a publisher. 
and it's obvious there's been a lot of attention to the sentences in the book. Um, I don't know if you can speak and make language around your sensibility around how you construct or play with language or what you look for or what sound you're seeking, but also made me curious if there was influences from poetry or from very language-forward fiction, chewy sentence fiction. <laughs> well, I, I do want to say it's impossible to pick a favorite sentence from your own book. Um, I wanted a longer one, but it was too long for the graphic. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, uh, I feel like so much of the language in this book really goes for, for sonics and what's whatever the, the quality of running downhill kind of, and how that has a certain sound to it, I think. Um, in one of Lainey's classes, we she talked about um, words with Latin roots versus Anglican, I think. Anglo-Saxon. Anglo and I was like, oh. That uh, completely changes things where you start to notice like what is more, what sounds more fluid versus what sounds more like um, train cars hooking together, kind of. And so keeping that in mind and figuring out what's actually going to work and sound the way that I want it to sound in order to create a certain energy, too. And I think poetry definitely has been a huge influence. Poets get to play around with that stuff all the time. It's like what they do. But there's so many fiction writers, prose writers, who also just manage to do the same thing. One of the earliest big influences in that regard is Tom Robbins, who I feel mixed about, as you know. <laughs> he's just, he's a weirdo. Um, his novel, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, there's, there's kind of two openings to it. There's an opening where there's a, a woman sitting in an outhouse, and then after that section, he describes the main character's gigantic thumbs, but he, he starts by describing what they are not. He talks about different organs in the body and how they are not her thumbs, basically, as a way of getting around to how can I describe it? And he uses very, very long sentences, very like overly descriptive language. There's, I feel like there's a fine line between purple prose and just being indulgent with yourself. And I try to lean towards indulgent. Well, that makes me think of the other force other than the jars that feels like, in some ways, the opposite, mm -hmm. the eight-legged calf. Mm -hmm. There's this too-muchness of the calf that one of the sisters is mesmerized by from the roadside museum and wants to rescue. It's also uncanny. Mm -hmm. We have this ephemeral and invisible invisibility of the jars, and then strangely, it's uncanny, but it's very real. Mm -hmm. So this is a this is actually just a a strange and yet very real. It happens sometimes. Yeah, it happens sometimes. <laughs> and I guess I would love to hear about that because here we're thinking about normative form, 
And I mean, I thought of Lydia Yuknovich and the Misfit Manifesto mm-hmm. and her engagement with misfits. And it feels like maybe that's going on. But I also was wondering, this is probably a stretch, but and I'm thinking about can language describe, like you just said, this fine line around over-description. And when I was talking to Daniel Mendelssohn, the classicist for the show, he had these two different modes of, of language, the Greek mode and the Hebrew mode. And the Greek mode is this belief that language can describe if you give it enough time, mm-hmm. if you give it enough words. So like when there's a book about the Persian Empire, there needs to be an entire chapter about the entire history of Egypt because Egypt was part of the Persian Empire at one point. So it's just this very maximalist, mm-hmm. but also sense of faith in in language versus the Hebrew mode, which believed that you couldn't capture and in, in fact, leaving the space and the absences of what you couldn't capture was important. I'd love to know how you feel about that. But I also want to hear more about what you think the calf is doing in the book, either alongside the jars or just more generally this, this creature that doesn't have peers, essentially. Mm-hmm. And yet the sister is finding such a connection with. Wow, she doesn't have peers. That's so interesting. Yeah, she's, she's very lonely in her own way. And she's also in a glass case. Well, to go back to talking about language and sort of piling up, a lot of my process does involve uh, a lot of typing a word into the dictionary app and then just going back through the roots for that word and just finding, like, okay, what, what else can this maybe sort of wind its way into relating to that might also be a good adjective or, or something. Um, and there's a lot of discovery there too. And it does sort of, it leads to different things also and piles up in a, in a different way. That's what I like looking at it that way. But yes, so the calf is real. Um, she is still in New Mexico in a glass case, as far as I know. I haven't told the Billy the Kid Museum about the book. I don't know if I should. Um, it's for the gift shop. <laughs> they have a gift shop. Should I send it to them? Okay. Um, so seeing this this real thing that is so... just completely sticks out in the context of the museum that it's in, it doesn't make sense for her to be in there. <laughs> There's like... Yeah, there's like cars and buggies and guns and regular deer head taxidermy and then you turn a corner and there's this creature with eight legs that uh, looks completely mangled but is also the idea that that she was born at all and that somebody, I don't know who, I would love to know who, I'll never know, was also fascinated by her enough to take her skin off after she died and put it on a different form to preserve her in a certain way. And I'm assuming that her legs are more or less the way that the only way that they could be. That's an artifact in itself that people have always, not everybody, because some people are totally disgusted by it, but I would say maybe in general, people have always been fascinated by these things and willing to 
to, to do whatever they can to keep looking at it. Like she's on display for the public. So you can just go there and camp out for hours if you wanted to, uh, and just reckon with this creature that exists and, um, is completely unlike either of the sisters in, in that. I mean, she's an animal. She has eight legs. She's dead. But I, I'm not totally sure why myself or Gloria was fascinated with her either, but there was just something about the idea of what if you did latch onto this and realized your obsession with this thing and fought like hell to, to make it yours. It That's felt, uncanny it, in its own way. Yeah, it felt related to the grief. Like, yeah. can't capture it, but it's too much at the same time. Yeah, and it's it's unique. To, like, grief is ubiquitous in its own ways, but it's also when you're in it, it's in your body. It's uniquely your own experience. And so frequently, like, impossible to put language to in a way that feels adequate. Maybe in the same way that it feels impossible to, for Gloria to really explain or understand why this calf is just something that she's drawn to. And maybe there is a sort of like substituting one very intense emotion for another or trying to do that, which is also maybe just a very human thing to do. Also, whether we realize it or not, you get very overwhelming feelings and you have to figure out what to do with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's open up the conversation for questions. Since this is being recorded, if you're open to being on the podcast, I'll hand you the microphone. Hi. Hi. Is there anything in particular that you were thinking you would like to capture in a jar and if so, what would it be? Oh, boy. Um, time. I mean, there's a whole song about catching time in a bottle, though. That's kind of... Um, I, th- I think it's a uh, uh, momentum. Yeah. You talked a bit about being influenced by Westerns. Like, obviously, in the location, it's referencing a lot of very sort of famous backdrops. Are there other ways in which you feel like this book is referencing that genre? Yeah. So there are a few different references written throughout like, um, spaghetti Westerns and, um, when we last left our hero, that kind of thing, notions of riding off into the sunset. And like a lot of people, I did have uh, a Western phase where I watched a lot of Clint Eastwood movies and then was lucky enough to be present for Claire Vay Watkins' talk on pandering at Tin House <laughs> a few years ago. I was like, oh, right. There is such a thing as uh, getting into Westerns for the wrong reason. But yeah, I think mostly just like Westerns are also kind of boring sometimes. So it, it can be an excuse for like looking at a landscape that you're not in and looking at people riding horses too, which is great. And I mean, there is something to that idea of like a kind of a hero's journey or like somebody in this story is a bona fide hero and there's a villain and I don't know, there's something romantic about that too. 
Um, you talked about uh, this book starting as a short story. Um, could you tell us how it evolved into the current form? Yeah. Um, I found an early draft of this a few years ago and was like, there were men in this at one point? Scandalous. Um, and it just kept going. I got to 20 pages and was like, this is the longest thing I've ever written, and I'm not done. I think initially it was also like more alien-focused. Really, A lot of it has felt like an experiment in what happens if you just keep going and um, don't necessarily know what the ending is either. So there's a lot of discovery, I think, um, and just... L what happens if you just let yourself keep writing? I'm glad glad I didn't stop. <laughs> it also has the best cover ever. Ever. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> While we're waiting for the next question, you're a visual artist, mm -hmm. and you've mentioned that quilting and collaging is a similar process to writing in other places. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that comes up for you about either of those? You have a background in painting and writing in your undergraduate. Um, yeah. For uh, quilting and collaging, and especially this, especially in um, part one, which was written the longest ago, it's in fragments. It's all about piecing things together and moving things around, what can be a little more uh, modular to figuring that out, figuring out different constructions of things. Yeah. So you were talking earlier about expanding it from short story um, to, to this complete work, and I just wanted to know if you had any say about like choosing the form of a novella. Like it's Because of a road narrative, it's a complete work as it is, but it could have gone on forever. Mm -hmm. It could have stayed a short story. So is, is there a reason why it landed at the length that it did? Fear. <laughs> uh, what, what happens if I keep writing it for 20 more years? Uh, does it ever end? I mean, there's so much more that I could have put in here, you know, whole swaths of this state that could have also been illustrated. And, um, I think it just came down to feeling like the sisters do, where at some point you know that the journey has to end, and um, and it's safe for that to end also. Hi, perhaps about your favorite sentence, because you mentioned that you were sad you couldn't like have a longer sentence. Mm -hmm. uh, is there one you would want to read us that you love? Sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, asking that. Let me see if I can find it. I can only have one. Um, well, you took my question. So, <laughs> so I'll just couple that with saying I, I really liked what you said about words flowing versus clashing like train cars. <laughs> and... Um, I think I'm going to think about that for a while. So thank you for that. Yeah. It's not really a question. But I was just thinking about the jars and the calf and um, something that you guys haven't talked about, but I know is part of the book is ghost towns. Um, and I was just thinking about, yeah, maybe how that 
came about for you, whether it was before, you know, as a piece, you know, whether the jars and the calf came first or just how that sits for you? Well, Kate and I did go to a ghost town. I think we took a tour there. It was like a tour guide. But, I mean, this is true for Oregon, too. Like, there's ghost towns everywhere that you can just walk into. And it's almost like uh, you could think of it as like a haunted house turned inside out where you don't necessarily have to go inside a space. All the ghosts are having showdowns on the road, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it it plays well with the idea of um, believing in something invisible and... But yeah, I didn't really get into ghosts versus invisible things, though. Maybe I should have. But yeah, it's interesting to think about. Did you find the sentence? I found it. You found it? I found it. I'm Bullet. I'm Kowalski, Captain America. I'm every horse in the race trying to get out from under the jockey, fire blasting from my lungs, only concerned with speed as a means of breaking free, and I become a whole herd of horses, unbridled, unshod, only the body that knows how to run, 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 up, 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 up. If only I could run and drive at the same time. If only my body could produce the same power and push on its own. So maybe I would stop feeling like my muscles were going to wrench themselves away from the joint and writhe out of my skin, the meat of me tearing itself free. Let's give a final round of applause for Colleen Burner. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Colleen's writing and visual art and their literary journal, Shirley Magazine, at ColleenBurner.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener-supporter. Thinking of Sister Golden Calf and its woman-centric world, we have many new bundles of books from Dorothy Books, one of my favorite presses that publishes two books each year, each by a woman, with books by everyone from Kate Briggs to Karen Balin to Leonora Carrington to Amina Kane. There's also the bonus audio archive, which includes readings, craft talks, and more. And every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. And every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Best Title in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. 
Finally, I'd like to thank Pass Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Jo Rabins for making the intro and outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film at aliciajo.com. A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com. Thank you.